Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. Today, I have the honor to have with us Mr. Steve Kalili, the founder of the Global Peace Index, the world's leading quantitative measurement of global peacefulness, ranking 163 countries and independent territories. Steve founded and currently serves as the executive chairman of the Institute for Economic and Peace, an impactful think tank whose research is used extensively across international organizations like the UN, the World Bank, and the OECD. He recently authored a published book entitled Peace in the Age of Chaos, the best solution for a sustainable future. Steve, welcome to Trade for Peace. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Axel. Welcome. Thank you. And we also have with us Dr. Sabina Akiri, the director of the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, the OPHI. She is the founder and the developer of the Akiri Foster Method for Measuring Multidimensional Poverty, a flexible technique that can incorporate different dimensions or aspects of poverty to create measures tailored to each context. The AF models is used to produce multi-divisional poverty index, showing poverty according to demographics, serving as detailed information platform for policy design. Sabina is also a member of the IEP International Advisory Council. Thank you so much, Axel. It's lovely to be here. Now, I often like to start our conversation with a question I ask all of our guests. And I would like to start with you, Steve. What does trade for peace mean to you? I think trade for peace to me means many, many things. First, I think it just at a very high level just increases the positive connections between societies. And this flows into things like knowledge transfer, higher levels of investment, uh, uh, travel between the countries, treaties and and determining the way different countries operate together. And I think sort of productivity is a big thing because as you actually start to do more trade, you increase productivity. Increases in productivity, and I'll keep coming back to this again and again, increased prosperity. Increased prosperity takes away the drivers of conflict. I think increased cultural understanding comes from trade too, because I certainly know with my own business life, travelling to other cultures, I got to understand the cultures much better. And I think that then creates better integration. You also got the cross-fertilisation of ideas and knowledge. It's that cross-fertilisation of ideas and knowledge, again, that comes back and improves productivity, also improves the efficiencies within a society and also builds a better understanding of other societies as well. It gives you the ability to be able to leverage the individual strengths of the different countries involved in the trade. Again, it comes back to things underlying increases in prosperity, 
increases in productivity. And so what happens is you increase prosperity or wealth. That then lessens a lot of the local grievances within a society, improves government finances. They're now better able to fund a whole lot of different programs, which could be programs such as improving education, could be improving health. And then also you're starting to move into the dimensions of some forms of social security, which, again, all things lessen the drivers of uh, conflict. And I guess also if we're looking into it and we can see this coming out of the back of COVID-19, is as we start to look at those integration societies, when you're integrated financially, you're a lot more likely to think twice before having conflict because that'll affect the actual financial interests of your own country. And we can just see how these dependencies and this global dependencies come together in the age of COVID and also the impact it's had on supply chains. So you can imagine we're just seeing that through the impact of COVID. Imagine what would happen to the global economy with war. more integrated we get, the less likely we are to fight. I think also very deliberately draws one's eye to the bottom of the distribution because when we speak about prosperity or when we speak about welfare, the assumption can be that if a country enjoys prosperity, then all of the people do. But I think an emphasis on the bottom of the distribution, on the people who are left out, perhaps, who need extra effort in small and medium enterprises um, and extra effort to ensure that they have jobs and wages that are sufficient, that that would be the particular extra angle of the trade for peace. And that would be a very direct line into doing what Steve also said, which was reducing grievances, the senses of injustice, which, as Amartya Sen said, are one of the ways that people can be marshaled in to different kinds of conflict. Thank you, Sabina. Now, I would like us to talk a little bit about peace and the definition of peace. As you know, it's a word that is used quite extensively and has various meanings in different contexts. Steve, in your book, Peace in the Age of Chaos, you said, and I quote, enumerating the cost of conflict can be a powerful tool to educate people about the positive benefits of peace, making them more receptive to the policy shifts that will be necessary to create a more peaceful world. You also talked about the concept of positive peace in your book. Can you tell us the difference between peace and positive peace and explain how the IEP measures these two concepts? I know in your book, you credit Dr. Martin Luther King in his letter from Birmingham City Jail, where he pointed out that true peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is also the presence of justice. And you credit him as sort of the origin of this idea of positive peace. But what is it and how does IEP measure this concept? So, There's all sorts of different definitions of peace. And after many, many years of thinking about it, I see a definition depending on what's the, what are you trying to achieve? So we'll go back to the Global Peace Index, uh, which is the world's leading measure of global peacefulness. So with that, we use the definition of the absence of violence or fear of violence as the definition of peace. And that's called a negative definition of peace. Now, that's very, very important because what that means then is we can actually count the levels of violence and then the absence of it is what we use as the measure of peace. So there's other concepts, like particularly in Eastern concepts of inner peace. 
So really sort of that's the absence of afflictive emotion, if you like. We find politicians quite often will define peace as when the guns stop and the war stops. So it's just the absence of war. Now, a much more flourishing definition of peace is positive peace, and that is the attitude, institutions and structures which create and sustain peaceful societies. Now, the power, the definition of the positive peace which we have lies in the way it's constructed. So since we've got the Global Peace Index and we've got about 15 years' worth of data, we've got a really solid base to be able to now use mathematical modelling and statistics to arrive at a concept of what is peace. And so we use that and we work with about 50,000 different data sets, indexes, attitudinal surveys, do a whole lot of quantitative analysis to be able to determine the factors most closely associated with peace. Now, what we do then is we take that, put it together, use other techniques to clump it together to understand sort of how it clumps, and that comes out in what we call eight pillars. So they're the eight pillars of positive peace. But what's really amazing is we then can take that and put it back around to another index. When we do that now, we can see the velocity of countries in moving towards or away from peace and all the qualities which create peace. But what's more profound, not only do these qualities, positive peace or the eight pillars of positive peace create peace, Those same conditions create a lot of the other things we think are really important in society. So they're higher per capita income. So, um, for example, countries which are improving in positive peace compared to countries which are deteriorating, on average, have 2% higher per annum GDP growth rates. Their uh, currencies appreciate, whereas countries which are deteriorating in positive peace tend to deteriorate. Their inflation rates are lower. Their interest rates are lower, their inflation rates are a lot less volatile, and they attract twice as much foreign direct investment because obviously trading for peace, those kind of things are important. Better on measures of well-being and happiness, better on measurements of performance in ecological management, and better on performance of development. So what we'd say, positive peace in many ways, describes an optimal environment for human potential to flourish. And that ties in very, very strongly with the concepts of the World Trade Organization, kind of things which they want for a session, and just also the general philosophies. And so that concept of peace, it just turns out that positive peace, the same things which create peace, create a lot of the other things we really desire in our societies as well. Thank you, Steve. We'll talk a little bit more about positive peace later on, but I would like to uh, turn to you, Sabina. As you know, conflict and poverty intrinsically are linked. And as you may be aware, the World Bank projects that by 2030, up to two-thirds of the world's extreme poor could live in fragile conflict or violence setting. Now, can you share with us how the multi-dimension poverty index reflects various dimensions of poverty and how does it reflect the fragility dimensions? Thank you so much. So as you know, poverty is traditionally measured in a monetary sense, looking at the income or the consumption of a household and determining if it falls short of a line. But a multidimensional poverty measure looks at the critical mass of deprivations that strike the same person at the same time. 
like undernutrition, child mortality, a child out of school, nobody with a education in the household, lack of clean water, sanitation, housing, electricity, clean energy, etc. So using those indicators or some version of them, we look at multidimensional poverty across 109 countries and 5.9 billion people. So there's a database to interact with other kinds of analyses. And so, for example, if we look at the World Bank's list of conflict-affected and fragile states for 2022, we find that the seven poorest states are on that list. We find that 80% of the 10 poorest countries and eight out of 10 of the poorest states are conflict-affected. If we move up to 30 countries, then 72% of the population in those 32 countries that are the poorest in the world live in conflict-affected states. And of the 40 poorest countries, it's 63%. And so the density of overlap between these different kinds of struggles of peace and of poverty are very much aligned. And even with the data being sometimes before conflict, sometimes not in the right periods, we can still see a very, very strong association. And that draws our eye towards looking at trying to address both of these together, because surely they are interlinked. And as Steve said, the work of positive peace has the double benefits of addressing both in an integrated fashion. Now, Sabina, I would like us to apply the model to the Afghanistan experience pre Taliban uh, takeover and post-Taliban takeover. How would you look at that situation and what policy recommendations can you draw from information from that experience? So Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in our index, one of the 30 poorest, but it also has an official national poverty statistic that the government used before the takeover. In 2016, 51.7% of the population were poor. And that had reduced in a very small but significant way in the 2019-20 survey that they released in the Statistics Commission of March 2020 using post-pandemic data. So there was a very small increase. But because of COVID, there were simulations on food insecurity increases, on employment increases, increases in informal employment. And each of those singly, if only one of them happened, would have populations of 75% in poverty. And if we added to that school attendance and the nexus, at the moment, the UNDP prediction is that 97% of people could be living in poverty. How that has changed is that some of that will be because of the pandemic, and some of that will be because of the cessation after the conflict with the migration from urban to rural areas, with the movements of population and the exodus of some of the people who would have been, of course, the non-poor, so it affects your denominator. So there are a number of levers that have changed. But those are the cause for concern in terms of poverty numbers there. These are simulated because we don't have data from 2021. So say I'm UNDP and we're looking for ways to tackle some of these poverty issues in Afghanistan. What would be some indicators to look out for and recommendations that will come out of a model out of the, the poverty index? One of the striking features of Afghanistan is that across the 35, 30, 30 some provinces, there was a great variety in the patterns of deprivations. So in Nuristan, it's very different than in Kandahar. And so it, it actually is very much not one size fits all. The deprivations that predominate vary in different provinces. But clearly, a cross-cutting issue is food insecurity that requires a, a clear and concerted effort, as are lacks of health situations more generally. Hence, the polio campaign is very welcome. 
But then the informal work, the high dependency ratios of many people per one regularly employed worker are very high. Obviously, the shock was included in their national MPI, not only shock from security, but also income and production shocks. And those varied across the country, but they were a significant contributor. And Afghanistan also had a gendered schooling indicator. And so it had female schooling entered separately from male. And those will be moving in different directions now uh, as well. So I think that there are multiple priorities. You cannot boil it down to one approach. But having data to understand how those shift from different regions makes the effectiveness of the interventions perhaps more accurate. Thank you, Sabina. Now over to you, Steve. I want us to get back to the idea of positive peace, you know, where, you know, the pillars you look at sort of the well-functioning government, sound business environment, equitable distribution of resources, acceptance of the rights of others, good relations with neighbors, free flow of information. All of those are critical to positive peace. Now the Afghanistan experience pre-Taliban had a presence, a military presence. Uh, Afghanistan was able to integrate into the multilateral trading system by joining the WTO, was in the process of a post-WTO accession implementation to better integrate within the region many saw as a means of securing peace and creating uh, prosperity for all. But we also witnessed the fall of the state and you know, the current reality uh, with the current uh, Taliban takeover, which poses a fundamental question. Can peace be imported? And is government the primary driver of peace? Or are the citizens' ownership of peace or the culture embracing and interpretation of peace critical to sustaining peace? So that's a really great question and probably would take a week to answer it in its entirety. So, but first I want to just make a statement on Afghanistan. So if you look at the, really the most conservative estimates for what it cost the US was $2.3 trillion, okay? So that, and that excludes uh, all the allies, what they spent in America's expenses in Pakistan where, where it had bases and operations. But at $2.3 billion, that's 100 times the per capita income in Afghanistan, it's only $507. Now, if you'd just given everyone in the country 10 times the per capita income, what if you created more peace? Okay, that's a very profound question. But something which is more profound is if you don't get the development right, no amount of money is going to solve a problem. Okay, and sort of if we move over into Africa and we move up into the Horn of Africa and the Sahel, we've got a lot of wicked problems happening there as well. And so globally, I think we've got to get a lot smarter about how we do development. Now, Sabina threw up some statistics on poverty and conflict, and all those stats are so true, they're so true. But we've just released an ecological threat report. And in that, I think the most surprising finding is when we're looking at ecological degradation and its relationship back to conflict. So 11 of the 15 countries which score got the lowest score currently in conflict and the other four what we call a watch list. Afghanistan has the worst score of any country on this ecological threat index. You find Syria, Iraq, 
Yemen, all the countries down there. So you've got this interrelationship and cyclic relationship between resource degradation and conflict, one leading to the other, and it just cycles back around. Now let's come back to positive peace. Okay, so what positive peace does, it works in a systemic way. So you've got each of the different pillars feeding in on each other. And so what's important is not to focus on one or two pillars, and a lot of the time what we'll focus on is strong business environment, which is really important, high levels of human capital as it epitomised through education. And generally most of the emphasis goes in on that, but all the other pillars are really important as well. So we went back to Afghanistan, low levels of corruption is one of the pillars. What we noticed, if you look at you had corruption go through the roof. It's one of the most corrupt countries in the world. That'd be one example. So you need to focus on all these pillars together because they work systemically. And so quite often we're always looking at a problem. Okay, what was the cause of the problem? And we try and fix that cause. And so it's very narrow causal thinking. So just give you an idea of the way we would think about it from a systems perspective. And this, again, is a very big conversation. I'll give one simple example. So if you start to think of things like, let's say, well-functioning government, we'll use low levels of corruption, something I've mentioned it already, and we use free flow of information, which can be epitomised by a free press. Does government affect corruption with the laws it passes? Or does corruption affect the government and the laws it passes? Does free flow of information affect the government or does the government regulations affect the free flow of information? Does, on the other hand, does corruption affect the way information is passed through society or does the levels of information affect corruption and the tolerance there is for corruption within a society? You can't separate any of it. So therefore, you've got to start to look at countries systemically and start to now look at what are those underlying systemic issues within a country. No one ever did that in Afghanistan. What really went on in Afghanistan was felt that the military might would always win through and there was always enough money to throw at the problem so you didn't have to worry about the corruption within government you didn't have to worry about the, a lot of the equity issues like acceptance of the rights of others between the different uh, ethnic groups and tribes within Afghanistan. So the lesson going forward is we really need to start to look at these problems systemically. And then in trying to tackle problems systemically, this create poses another very, very difficult question. What does an operational intervention into an area look like if it's systemic. It's very different in the way we go about doing it now. But it's a big question, but probably not enough time for us to answer on this one, Axel. I grew up in Liberia and I worked in Liberia during the transition period from what over two decades of conflict. And when I often hear people talk about the role of the citizens in Afghanistan in terms of people who have lived in an environment of peace in spite of all the poverty challenges. What do you foresee the role of citizens in terms of shaping the Taliban governance of the state moving forward? 
I think it's very, very difficult. I think uh, Sabina's got a lot better knowledge on this than me. But for me, a lot of the identification comes back to the identification with the ethnic group and the valley in which you live. So you've got this big divide between the different ethnic groups. And I think really if you want to shape peace, somehow you have to have a peace which is integrated and a peace which is inclusive of many different ethnic groups. Now, these ethnic groups have been fighting for hundreds of years, if not longer. And so getting to that point gets very, very difficult. But I think a lot of it comes around to those concepts and the accepting of inclusiveness, if you like, and sometimes the inclusiveness, we can talk too much about it without actually looking at what you really need to do to be inclusive. But I think... A lot of it comes back to the inclusiveness and the ability to be able to pull these different ethnic groups in so they do feel that they have their feet at the table. Thank you, Steve. Now, I would like us to talk about globalization on peace and poverty. And over to you, Sabina. Many would argue that we are more connected as a world today. There is free movement of trade. There are global companies, billionaires, and technology advancing in so many ways. But yet, we still have major poverty and conflict challenges worldwide. In your view, Sabina, what do you see as the impact of globalization on poverty and conflict in our world today? Again, those are huge questions, and it would be lovely to have a very long conversation about that. But I'll, I'll be brief. I think one is at the level of ideas which should not be underestimated. But I think being able now to profile the costs of ethnic disparity, where we find in a study this year of 2.4 billion people, the disparity is higher between ethnic groups than between 1,291 subnational regions of countries. So being able to profile these things or the gender aspect that of the poor, two-thirds of the 1.3 billion people lack a woman in their household. That kind of idea can send a message that then can, go going back to the grassroots, can encourage different students, different NGOs, different workers to grab the problem from their angle to make it better, more suited to their condition, but to think about it. And so I think the global awareness and the sustainable development goals and the different mechanisms of drawing attention to these are one factor. And I think the other factor, which is really important is the extent to which people are able to access different solutions that are more high technology. And so we see, you know, we we profiled this year, one woman who had fled from South Sudan to Uganda was very poor in many dimensions, but she had solar electricity and that powered her light bulb, that charged her cell phone. And so to see this ability of technology that's crafted correctly to go forward is, is very important. And yet there's the big gap because COVID very sadly affected 241 billion people. And very sadly, you know, uh, it, it had a, a toll in terms of people's lives. But these poverty and conflict things affect a much larger population. And so there's also a call for the same kind of serious intellectual engagement with these problems by actors as, as we have to others. Because with globalized creativity, there could be really strong, positive changes that could be crafted. Thank you, Sabina. And Steve, 
in your book, you talked about peace in a interconnected world. Uh, so in your view, how has globalization influenced global peace and violence and how can we address the emerging challenges? So we'll start with the emerging challenges. So I think there's a number of them. And let's come back in many stages, the overutilisation of resources in some parts of the world. That's it. And so in Africa, that's a particular focus for a lot of the work we do. So it's estimated in the next 30 years that the, the population of Africa will increase by 90%. And sort of the country the largest increase will be Niger at 161%. And so you've already got issues around water and agriculture. And so part of these systemic issues you need and weak governance in many countries. So this is something you need needs to come back and get addressed. So if we're looking at the thing which really stands out to me at the moment, if you look at the number of undernourished people in the world, it had been for decades improving up to 2014. And since then, it's deteriorated. So the number of undernourished people has increased by 44% since 2014. It's now 30% of the global population. In other words, 2.3 billion people. We just look in the last two years, the cost of food has gone up 24%. And so for the poorest of the poor, that's a major imposition on them. Now, let's come back. Those are some of the critical issues I see at the moment. But globalisation, in many ways, is hugely beneficial, and the World Trade Organisation plays an exceptionally important role in it. So, look, if you look at it, an interconnected world provides more avenues for us just understanding what's going on. And understanding, in many ways, is another way of being able to look at knowledge. So the more interconnected we are, the more knowledge we've got. And that flows on into all sorts of ways of being able to improve the productivity we've got, being able to improve the, our well-being and happiness, improve our health and our education, much more. I think also, if we're looking at, let's say, part of the World Trade Organization, we're looking, it provides for rules for development, these rules for development then sort of give us the ability to be able to work together in interconnected ways. And so the WTO, as mentioned, is an excellent example. We've also got bodies for standards for really simple things like the car seats, which are in cars. So you can have make car seats in one country and ship them anywhere around the world. That increases productivity. Productivity increases prosperity. And that comes back as well. We've also got the uh, bodies such as the UN, which come around and also help now create rules. There's forums, badly maybe not perfect, but forums for being able to discuss international tensions and conflicts. We've got UN peacekeeping bodies, which in some cases are exceptionally good. We've got other bodies, like if we went to Africa, we've got the African Union, we've got ECOWAS, they're organisations which are growing and providing better governance uh, you know, for those parts of the world. You could go over, you've got ASEAN, and that's another area of globalisation coming together to form bodies which work on peace. Similarly, you've got other different groupings like the OECD, you've got the G20, you've got OSCE in Eastern and Western Europe. And I think, finally, globalisation creates travel, and travel creates better cultural understanding. You certainly, if you go and visit a country, you come back from it, 90 
8% of the time, you come back with a lot more empathy for the culture you've been to. And sort of underpinning all this is technological advancement. So it becomes cheaper and faster to travel to somewhere else and easier to do business. Like one of the silver linings from COVID is just the ability to be able to where you have FaceTime and interconnected world via Zoom and other platforms like we're doing right now. And so as technology advances further into the future in ways we can't even imagine today, we're going to find this globalisation and interconnection just become a lot stronger. But the point of warning is that as this globalisation increases, so does our interdependency. And it's something we can't lose sight of because we can see with COVID-19, as I mentioned earlier on, with just supply chain issues coming out of that, which is something we would have never thought. Imagine the impact if we start to end up in cold wars or hot wars. It really will have real impact on all the economies around the world. Thank you, Steve, for your insight there. And thanks to you, Sabina. You are listening to Trade for Peace, Brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. I would like us to talk a little bit about the role of the WTO accession in fostering peace and economic prosperity. As you're aware, the WTO accession process is essentially a process of reforms uh, requiring the development and implementation of legal, economic, and policy frameworks that are aligned with international best practices. To you, Steve, how can these reforms support peace and economic prosperity? Well, I think come back to positive peace. And so the thing I like about the accession process with the WTO, it's systemic in many, many different ways. So I think sort of when we're looking at it, it's a multi-prong coming from many, many different directions. So if we look at just a few things you've got in the accession process, like if you look at the legal frameworks which countries bring in, this has lead to a lot less grievances that reduce the number of grievances within societies and allow for better negotiated outcomes because you've got a legal system which has got a clear set of laws, particularly around sort of property rights and investment, which will make investment a lot more attractive within countries. We're looking at the economic frameworks that allows for stronger economies. That then underpins the investment. That investment then underpins Export industries, again, comes back and underpins prosperity. And we know that preference in prosperity, particularly if it's well shared, as Sabina quite rightly points out, improves the prospects for peace. We've got areas with the accession process around best practices, like international best practices. Again, that comes back to the prosperity, improves the efficiency of the operations within these countries. That gives better tax takes for the governments. They can then provide better health services, which in many of these countries want to join the WTO. Health is incredibly important. Better education, 
and in some cases, better social services. So all this lessens the drivers of conflict, but it's also cycling. It's really important to understand that in systems, systems are self-perpetuating. We like to refer to virtuous and vicious cycles because if you can kickstart society and it's on a virtuous cycle, it'll just keep improving just in the nature of the way the system's set up. In other words, just through the encoded norms within the society. So the accession, the WTO, in many ways starts to kickstart this virtuous cycle. Thank you, Steve. And to you, Sabina. I think, again, Steve covered many of the key points. But the accession process has to recognise that the effect of trade on, on peace and poverty are going to be very highly context-dependent. And so in each country, there will be questions of the same kind, because we know that trade will influence prices, wages, employment, which, as Steve said, was much, much higher in, in conflict-affected countries, and government revenue and inequality. But the question will be what will be the best avenues for those to have a stabilizing effect to kickstart that virtuous cycle that Steve was speaking about. And so it's clear protecting vulnerable groups, and that could be via wages, it could be via government revenue, it could be via the private sector. And in some cases, the private sector engage with the victims or with the ex-combatants. In some cases, the private sector do surveys on their own employee base or value chain to see which among them are poor and do appropriate actions, both to build solidarity within the company and also to do its part in the national project of fighting different kinds of vulnerabilities. And sometimes they look at other activities that will advance both the economic and the social aspects of ESG in the wider space because they recognize as the private sector that peace is also instrumentally necessary for them to continue. But in the accession process, then, there's a question for each country of how that accession can be the most equalizing, the most catalytic for these kinds of stable prosperity that's equally shared. And Sabina, just on the WTO, as you know, the, the organization is the creation of post-war environment to help better integrate in the more integrated countries are economically, the less likely they are to return to conflict, the more guarantees of prosperity. As the organization with the new director general taking over is going through a review process to look at how it can be fit for today's reality, fit for purpose in its contribution to the wicked challenges we have in our world today. As two champions of peace and development, what recommendation can you make in terms of policy direction or policy consideration would you make to the WTO in terms of the role peace plays in trade? Oh, thank you so much. I think that one is very much to be very deliberate in trying to trace that pathway, context-dependent, but making it a very firm and vocal and transparent commitment and because that will keep it in, in part of the accession process and that will also widen how the WTO and that process is seen because often it is seen in quite a narrow sense of prosperity, often for the, the better off. And the second is to take a step back. Steve mentioned that many of the countries in conflict or without peace are also under environmental threats. And we're also emerging out of a pandemic when values shifted a little bit. And so... 
it would be interesting to think about well-being rather than just prosperity, to think across aspects of culture, aspects that bring meaning in nature, because the WTO is about improving well-being. But to think what, at least as a thought exercise before it moves into policy, what would be some of the ways that a wider concept of well-being that included relationships, that included equality within societies, that included culture and music and things, how would that affect any of the activities? And that would be, again, an interesting time and place to think about the accession process and and things that might slightly be tweaked but would have far-reaching impacts. Yeah, indeed. Now, we, we have a final question, and this question is more directed to you, Eve. It's from uh, Tamin Evans, who is a senior fellow at the Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council here in Washington, D.C. And she asks, how can we better measure conflict prevention so that we can facilitate and navigate a way to peace? Look, it's an excellent question. So we've got models which we're using, and probably the best of the models is one we call a positive peace deficit model, okay? So we take this, we take the actual peace of a country, then we compare it, which we measure through the Global Peace Index, then take the theoretical level of peace in the country, which you measure through the positive peace. In countries where there's a very, very big gap they're the ones most likely to fall in peace. So we've been, we can take these models back about 15 years now because we've got that much data. But using those models, we can look at five to seven years ahead and we can get an accuracy of 70 to 90% on substantial falls in peace. And now built into that also, you need to be able to look at whether the resilience of the society is improving and like, so you can have these positive peace deficits if you like, but if you've got the resilience or the measures of positive peace improving, then it is less likely to fall in conflict. But that's the measure we're using. And if you went and had a look at our positive peace report, it's got the methodology in that, which we used last time. So if we're looking at it, I think it's if we went back seven years, and did an estimation there, and we took the 10 countries which had the biggest deficits, nine of them had a substantial fall in peace. If we looked at the 20 countries, which the biggest deficit, then we had the 14 of them, or 70%, have a substantial fall in peace. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Tammy, for forwarding that question. Sabina, I would like us to have come to the conclusion of the conversation, thanks to both for you. But I always conclude the conversation with a question that I ask all of the guests. So, Sabina, to you first. In one word, what does trade for peace mean to you and why? One word, difficult. <laughs> but if I had to think of a word, it is productivity. Because if you think of the people who are the victims, if you think of the people who are combatants, if you think of the people who are fueling, benefiting from, or being harmed by a conflict, all of their efforts, all of their imagination, their time, their energies could be spent more productively for themselves and for their societies. And so trade for peace is an invitation to all of those that are part of a conflict to turn their efforts into a different way that will be more beneficial for themselves, more beneficial for the society. Thank you, Sabina. And over to you, Steve. In one word, what does trade for peace mean to you and why? Gee, 
Not that much different than Sabina, surprisingly enough. I'd pick the word prosperity and sort of productivity and prosperity somewhere go together. But I'd much prefer to use three words, and I know I'm not allowed to, but uh, I'd be using peace equates with prosperity. So for me, sort of, a, I think prosperity in many ways, it provides a, in like that kind of, it's very, what you really got the systemic effects which provide the prosperity, but that's underlying lubricant, if you like, which provides the money to, uh, for governments then to be able to afford the uh, mechanisms to be able to improve the business environment, improve the education, improve the health, improve the health, you now got more productive people, improve the education, they're likely to come with, up with better business ideas and obviously that then sort of flows on and fuels back creating more prosperity within a society. So I think for this show, I'll stick with prosperity. Thank you, Steve. Prosperity and productivity. That was Steve Kalili, founder and executive chairman of the Institute for Economics and Peace, and Sabina Akiti, director of the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in today's episode, Trade for Peace, Measuring Peace. I am your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. You can be a part of the conversation by sharing your stories and your suggestions with us at tradeforpeace at wto.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trade for Peace. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thank you for listening to Trade for Peace.